I don't have the pew Bible in front of me, so if you have that, you can shout it out so everybody can get to there. Two sixty, okay. Two sixty it is. So this is root three from ESV translation. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, "My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is it not Boaz, our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor." Wash therefore and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as the mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than first. Do you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich? And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So see lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another, and he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the dressing floor, and he said, Bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out of six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, The six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of God. Thanks, Eric and Agnes.
Okay, last week we were in, obviously, Ruth chapter 2, and there we took a look at everyday faith uh, at, at work in, in terms of vocation. How can we approach our vocation, as well as, especially if we're in a position of strength like Boaz was, and be a good steward of it, and have others in mind and seek ways to be good to those who are around us, or if we're in a position of weakness like Ruth was, and she went out, she had to work hard out of necessity. How do we think about that? Everyday faith at work. And this morning, we're talking about everyday faith in love. This here, Ruth chapter 3, is pretty much the Old Testament version of the bachelorette, sort of. A little bit like Boaz extending the rose, for those of you who have maybe watched that or won't admit it, but have watched in fact, that's kind of what's happening, but it works out in a way, in the context is pretty unfamiliar to us. You know, what is going on here? We'll talk a little bit about that process for sure, but to give a look ahead at the results, because they are going to get together, and they are going to get married, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 here. This is the genealogy, so who's in Jesus' line? of ancestors, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. She'll come in later on. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. There's Ruth in Jesus' lineage along with a lot of other unlikelies. And that's what's so wonderful about the scriptures in so many respects. Ruth was a widow here in chapter 3. She's a foreigner. She's poor. And one of the reasons Ruth exists, it seems, is just to give us simple examples of how to live life well. Wherever you are, she was in Moab, and now she's in Israel. And whenever you live, this happens thousands of years ago, but we're here in the 21st century. And whoever you are, whether you're in a position of strength or weakness, whether you're a foreigner or you're somebody who's local, that's what God is giving us in his wisdom, the book of Ruth, among other things. How do you live life well wherever you are, whenever you exist, and whoever you are? Ruth, this Moabitess, becomes the mother of Obed, Obed of Jesse, Jesse of David. You know, can you imagine Obed, that Ruth was mom, the son of Boaz, um, asking, hey, mom, dad, how'd you meet? And sometimes people tell that story. They'd have an interesting story to tell. We talked a little bit about that at our couples fellowship as well. How did you all get together? And I was reading through this, uh, this chapter, uh, of course, and wondering if Boaz ever started out by saying, you know, I almost got cold feet. Over the entire, that's a bad joke. But I, I want us to look here at it, just kind of through the narrative, what it is that's happening, and what we're supposed to learn from it according uh, to to God's purposes, as it would seem. And in verses one through four, we see Naomi, this destitute uh, mother and mother-in-law, playing matchmaker, and Ruth being aware of her need. So Naomi, you know, matchmaker, matchmaker. 
Make me a match. Find me a fine. Catch me a catch. This is out of necessity, though. We focused last week on their position of weakness. Two widowers, two widowers, two widowers, uh, and one a foreigner. No future as far as we can tell. They have no hope at all in that society, in that culture. Rather than resign to that, however, Naomi wants to leverage the customs of the day for a way forward. We talk about lever at marriage. God had given away at that time for somebody who lost a husband without children, without sons, to remarry somebody in the family tree who could hopefully produce an heir for that family to go on. That was the law of lever at marriage. So she, Naomi, is holding on to hope. She's willing to believe that there might be something better ahead, and she pursues that. I mentioned maybe a year and a half ago a book called Hillbilly Elegy. I don't know if you've had a, a chance to read that. I made mention of it. It's, it kind of tells the story in many respects of people in our area as well from communities, Kentucky and Hollers and uh, kind of the Appalachian Trail that goes up, Rust Belt cities like Middletown, which you can get to in 10 minutes that is just decimated, very poor, and there's a, a subculture there of people who have come from the hills and the hollers of Kentucky and made their way up for jobs that aren't present any longer. And J.D. Vance, who grew up there, writes about his experience in that culture, understanding the mindset. And he's had a unique gift and managed to go off to Yale and become quite successful. And he's written about this. And I don't know if he did it, but he was intending to move back to Middletown because one of the conclusions he made about that culture is that there's resignation. Things are never going to change. There's no hope for a way forward other than what we have right now. And he wants to go back and show that there is a way forward to that. And Naomi somehow is kind of seeing that. She's grasping at straw. She's looking for ways to make life better. She hasn't given up, though. She's lost everything. She's somehow hung on to a shred of hope, and she says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pursue this possibility of a way forward. Let's take every step we can to make a future. Boaz, she says in these verses, is one of our kinsmen. He's a relative of Elimelech, my deceased husband. So not on, Naomi, or not on Ruth's side, but on Elimelech's side, her husband. There's somebody there who could possibly pursue you in marriage. Maybe he'll be open to that. The plan forms here in verse 2. He's going to be at the fleshing, threshing floor tonight. So this is harvest time. Boaz has some property. He's got some crops in the field. And of course, they're going to harvest the crops. And we looked at how the poor and the, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner could go behind and pick up what was left behind. You were supposed to leave things there. It wasn't just profit-driven. It was take care of those who are around you who can't, you know, make a way forward. And now there's this opportunity. He's hired people and they gather around. It's a multi-day process and the threshing floor is where they take that gathered harvest and uh, animals would go across and trample it and get out the grain and they'd throw it up into the wind and the chaff would go away and you have left what you're finally looking for. And that's where Boaz would stay somewhere close there, probably away from the rest of the other men overnight during this harvest time. That's how things happen. He's going to be there sleeping that night in a separate place. And Naomi wants Ruth to approach him there and to make the best possible presentation of herself. So now we go from the bachelorette to Mary Kay. 
basically here. You know, she didn't have much in the way of clothes. Some people think she didn't have anything except for maybe borrowing a shawl so we see what she, could, she does next. But the best she's got, she's going to do. She perfumes, she bathes, she puts on whatever clothes she happens to have. Naomi knows she's going to make the best presentation possible to Boaz. Approach him there. Naomi says, check on where he lies. Look for where he's going after he's eaten. He's had something to drink. Then uncover his feet, and he'll take care of the rest. Why uncover his feet? Most people think it's because his feet will get cold, and he'll wake up. A very practical thing that's going to happen next. And that seems kind of strange to us. Don't you think this whole scene's a little bit strange? I mean, from, from, from like our cultural context, this is odd. A little out of place. You know, I lived in Budapest, Hungary for two years, and I kept a list there of 99 cultural differences between my experience growing up, you know, in the United States out west and Hungary. And it was easy to get to those 99 uh, different, different differences. If we inserted ourselves in this story today, no matter who we are, we'd get to that number pretty quickly probably. So there seems like there's some distance. Even scholars find the telling of Ruth 3 a bit unique in terms of trying to understand specific practice. But clearly these were cultural customs of the way that you went through, an acceptable way that you approached somebody to make good on this law of leveret marriage. At the heart of it is what appears to be an approach that's petitioning Boaz to act in his role as kinsman redeemer. A kinsman, somebody who's close to you, a redeemer, somebody who would rescue you. He would come and he'd rescue them out of their poverty and he'd give them a hope and a future. That's what this is all about. The kinsman redeemer holds forth the prospect of continued lineage, a new name. The kinsman redeemer does what the widow cannot do on her own. Acquires her debts, settles her accounts. He'll provide He'll protect, he'll pursue, and he will validate. And Boaz, acting in this role, not surprisingly, is what theologians call a type of Christ. That is, he is foreshadowing Christ. Because hopefully those of you who are aware of the Bible and come to church often are thinking, that's just like Jesus. Yes, he rescues. He gives us a new name. He acquires our debts. He provides, he protects, he gives us a hope and a future. That's all that Boaz is doing as well. And so we shouldn't be surprised that we read in the Bible that the Son of Man, who we read about in the beginning of Matthew 1, came to seek and to save or to rescue those who are lost and have absolutely no hope at all. That's why he came. That's his purpose the difference, of course, is that many of us are completely unaware of being in a position of need. Ruth did not have to be convinced of it. She has no other alternative. This is our only hope. It's the Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, moment here in the Bible. Help us, Boaz. You're our only hope. And that's exactly what's happening here. Of course, for us, for so many of us, we've got other alternatives we think might work out better. And it's until we're stripped of our own self-reliance we realize we are lost and hopeless that we're called to turn to somebody who says, I am your kinsman redeemer. It's me. 
I'm the one who rescues and saves. She's aware of her poverty. She's willing to approach him and say, rescue me. Made me think of a song we sing sometimes. It was written back in the, in the 1700s. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. If you're waiting to come to Christ as kinsman redeemer until you're better or good enough, not going to happen. So this person says, I will arise and I will go to Jesus. He'll embrace me in his arms. Just a beautiful picture, too, of what happens with Ruth and Boaz. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. There are 10,000 blessings. There are 10,000 good things. I can't even count how many good things there are knowing him as kinsman and redeemer. Somebody wrote that because they had this experience with Jesus. You know, I was hearing a pastor speak once on a hard question years ago. Why did God allow the fall? I'm guessing you've thought about that before. You know, back there in the Bible, if God can control all things and why, and at least this man's response was, he said, if there was no fall, we would only know God as creator. But with it, we can know him now as redeemer. Because we know we're broken and we're lost, and he is here to bind up our wounds and to heal and to save us. And so we see here that Naomi is playing this matchmaker. But Ruth knows her need. She understands it. So she approaches Boaz in these next verses in 5 through 11. She willingly submits to this plan. And what does she find? The love extended to her. Verse 5 starts with the dream statement that every parent desires. There it is. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. Isn't that what you want, parents of your kids? I will obey every time, the first time, with a happy heart. Uh, I see a kid shaking head back there. This is what every parent wants to hear. There's remarkable devotion to her parental figure. This trusted wisdom and guidance of Naomi, really in a culture not her own, and she's submitted to that. She understands her role in carrying on the family line, perhaps even in seeing beyond herself to generations to come. That's what this lineage was all about. The first marriage that was done at our mother church, I remember, was John and Sarah File. For those of you who were here a few weeks ago, it's when Joe and I got away, so at the end of December, John and Sarah File were here. They're missionaries in Japan. Uh, you may have heard them. I heard they stood up during Stories of Grace and shared. They were the first wedding at, at our, our mother church, and their uh, uh, John, uh, Sarah's grandfather is a man named Jerry Kirk, who if you've been in Cincinnati for any length of time, he's sort of a uh, patriarchal figure in, in the faith community, uh, College Hill, PCUSA, downtown, and kind of a, a big, big leader in some important initiatives throughout the city, and just a godly man, a man of amazing prayer, and he shared during that service which he officiated about how he had prayed not just for his children but for their children and their children their children for generations to come for a godly lineage to be passed on and there's an opportunity for you as parents to begin praying for that as well it was encouraging to me and something for us to consider uh, certainly here we see Ruth maybe being an answer to somebody's prayer who knows and sometimes it's hard to see or believe that our present actions and prayers shape the future. But they do. Back here in this text, Ruth goes to the threshing floor. It has the feel of kind of that first date. 
I think, you know, butterflies. Who knows what's going to happen? Next, this anticipation. You don't know how things will turn out. She waits for Boaz to lay down. And then eventually, over time, uncovers his feet. He wakes up in the middle of the night. He's a bit startled. Some of us can identify with that. Again, with kids. (laughs) One of my kids used to wake up and just stand there at the side of the bed. And it was horrifying. Like this, just wake up and, wah! So, so there it is, the cold feet, wakes up Boaz. He can't quite see what's going on, who's there. And she says, Ruth, your servant. She tells him, spread the corner of garments over her. That's what he was supposed to do, a symbolic action. that He's willing to pursue her with respect to his duties as kinsman redeemer. It represents the same kind of protection and hope that was mentioned back in chapter 2 verse 12 there Boaz said to Ruth may you be richly rewarded by the Lord the God of Israel under whose wings you've come to take refuge so this is a physical picture of that I will give you refuge and he not only agrees but he does so with gratitude and he calls it in verse 10 a kindness that she is showing to him that's kind of a turn and twist in the story, right? You think all the time it's Ruth who's being shown kindness by Boaz, and he says, thanks for showing me this kindness. Oh, and we saw that word back in chapter 2, and it was kindness, he says, because you could go after other men, but you chose me. Back in chapter 2, we saw this about Boaz. In verse 20, Naomi says he's not showing kindness to them. And that word In the Hebrew, some of you are probably familiar with this. This kindness shows up several times. It's hesed, which is God's covenant love. That word for an Israelite, as they're reading this story, would just send off all kinds of bells and whistles. There's hesed being shown by Boaz to Ruth and Ruth to Boaz. That's the same kind of love God has for his people. The kind of pursuing love that never stops, even when you're unlovely. This is the kind of raw commitment that says, I am with you no matter what. That's the kind of kindness that they've been showing. This repeated expression of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. It's more than emotion. It's steadfast commitment. It's not the kind of love you find on the bachelorette. Typically, I'm guessing. It's the kind of love that you find in a mother visiting her son on death row. I love you. No matter what you've done. That would be using, if you were in the Hebrew, chesed. I'm going to show this kindness, this steadfast love to you no matter what. That's the kind of love, according to the Bible, that we're committing to in marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life. For people like you and me. That's why we call a wedding ceremony the covenant of marriage. It's a commitment. Now I had the chance to do my sister's wedding a handful of years ago now. She's not a believer. Husband is not either. And it was a civil ceremony. But I said, can I share some from, from the Bible? And they said, sure. And they gave me some passages, approved passages, unapproved passages or whatever. And, but I had the chance just to talk in a very eclectic group of people about about how marriage is so much about commitment. It's not just emotion. There's a lot of passion involved, yeah, but that kind of comes and goes. Underneath it all is this commitment to that person. 
That's what it's all about. That's the, the foundation of it. If you want a picture of it, then consider, especially those who look at the church and understand hypocrisy. You know, look at them. Those people are the worst people in the world, you would say. And, and you can say, yeah, that may be true. And Christ died for them. That's pretty remarkable. So if you want a picture of what marriage is supposed to look like, look at the church. Unlovely types. Christ said, I will die for them. That's his chesed to us. Someone willing to pursue us no matter what. Someone who loves us for who we are. Don't we all want that? I mean, I don't care if you're the toughest guy on the face of the planet. That's really what you want. And why are those, you know, mama jokes so offensive to people? <laughs> because your mother loves you like nobody else will. And you'll stand up and fight for her. We desire and long for that. And God says, I've given it to you in Christ. He's the kinsman redeemer. And Boaz is saying, Ruth, you're expressing that kind of kindness to me, that kind of love. And from his perspective, she was an eligible bachelorette. She must have had something going for her. I mean, we know that he talks about her character. You'd already heard about it. Maybe she was beautiful. Who knows? That's speculative. But what's clear is her character, previous chapters. But here in verse 11, look what he says. The whole town is aware of your character, that you are noble. She was virtuous. It's the same term we find in Proverbs 31.10, a wife of noble character. Who can find? She's worth far more than rubies. For our 15th year anniversary, uh, we got away to a resort after 17 years of marriage. It doesn't always happen when we're planning on doing it for various reasons. And I remember befriending a young man who was dating somebody. You know, he's one of those activity coordinators. If you've ever been to anything like that before and they've got activities and someone helps you. And we struck up a, a friendship over the course of the week and started talking about things. And he started telling me about his girlfriend and how he was, uh, he just, talked about her quite a bit and and I said so what do you like most about her and his answer was she's hot that's what his <laughs> that's what his answer was I said, okay I feel you you know uh I, you know you're attracted to her I get it and I I I, I got to ask a little bit a few more questions and and talk about my own experience with relationships and what matters most and I remember writing him a letter too and saying I just invite you to consider you know that Here's what Proverbs 31 10 says. You want something to be attracted to. It's the character of the woman that you're pursuing. Ruth was like that. You know, and in fact, in this next session, we'll talk, section here, and as we uh, you know, look at these final verses, we see Boaz is willing to pursue and demonstrate love as well. And really, these verses talk a lot, and they all have about how great the character is of Boaz and Ruth. He's willing to do the right thing. He's concerned about integrity. He says, leave before anybody gets a misunderstanding of what's going on here. And this shows up in the tabloids. You know, because people are going to wonder, did something go on that was inappropriate? He's concerned about proper procedure. He says, there's someone else, one step closer, who could pursue you. Let me make sure it's right by him first. And he's a man of action and responsibility. I'll do it immediately, first thing in the morning. So that we know what's happening. You're not left hanging and wondering what's going on. And Ruth is a person of good character. We've already seen that. So these are two just great people, right? Boaz is a great guy. 
He's just a good person. I mean, he's gracious. He was quick to offer blessings back in verse 10. He's compassionate. He says, don't be afraid. In verse 11, he has integrity. There's another kinsman closer in verse 12. He's generous. He's going to leave her with lots of food to take back and put on the plate. He's trustworthy. He'll do what he says. And Ruth, she's just a great gal. I mean, we've seen throughout this passage, she's kind to Naomi and Boaz in verse 10. She's got self-control. She's not running after others. She's going to do the right thing at the right time in the right way. She's noble and virtuous like a Proverbs 31 wife. She's selfless, pursuing good for Naomi. She's faithful. She comes back with her mother-in-law. She does what she's supposed to do. It would be pretty easy to take a text like this and say, be like Ruth. Be like Boaz. Be a better daughter. Be a better son. Love more. Give more. Endure trials better. Like these people. And a lot of people approach the Bible that way. It's basically called moralism, to give it a name. And moralism simply says this. Be a better person. Try harder. Obey. Abide by the rules. And th this, this is easy to slip into this mentality, not only in our relationship with God, but in our other relationships as well. We have to be careful. It's just self-improvement. And many people, myself included, confuse biblical faith with moralism all the time. It leads to a very dry and powerless and frustrating existence. And it leads ultimately, I would argue, to the pharisaical approach that the great religious leaders of Jesus they had as well. Just obey everything, then you'll be accepted by God. It's easy to slip into that mentality. It's why many people are cynical about the Christian faith. But the failure of moralism is at least twofold. And there's probably more to it than just this. But to put it in really theological terms, it misunderstands justification. That's a big word that just means, do you have a right standing before God? In God's court, are you pronounced not guilty? And moralism suggests that you can do enough eventually to have God smile. So when you see his face, it's not a scowl and a frown. You have disobeyed me again. I'm greatly disappointed in you. That's moralism. The gospel, on the other hand, says God's smiling on you because your faith has been placed in Christ who was the perfect son. He did everything that you could not do so that you're, you're in God's eyes, clean, justified, right. You're standing before him. It's almost like the kinsman redeemer who's taken on your account, your debts, and given you his assets. Like if you switch today, you know, PNC Bank, go online, transfer accounts, and you're trying to transfer into another account that's empty. Jesus has transferred his good works into yours. That's justification. And it can't be earned. But see, we sometimes think it can or subtly begin believing that our right standing before God is because of how awesome we are or who we've been made to be, the color of our skin, the amount of money we make how much power we have, aware of it or not, all that stuff, filthy rags 
before God. Moralism will tell you otherwise. Look at me, look at my people, look how awesome we are. And the cross just levels all that and says that is not true. Christ came for all. So it misunderstands justification. It forgets what our kinsman redeemer has accomplished. He had the perfect character. Our behavior, our accomplishments, our status can never measure up to God's standards. So he transfers the account to us. And the gospel then says instead of our standing before God is by what we do, Christ obeyed perfectly for you. That's central. That's the essence of faith. What biblical faith looks like. I believe that. Christ obeyed perfectly for me. Yes. There's another misunderstanding. It misunderstands sanctification. For those of you who are familiar with these terms, justification, the one-time event, when you say yes to Jesus, sanctification, an ongoing process of becoming more like Christ. How do we change for the better? How do we become better people? Conforming more to God's image. That's the second part that's misunderstood. Moralism never addresses the heart. The core issue that's at stake, it just addresses behavior. So it says, you can be better, just try harder. That's basically what life is about. Kids, adults, employees, neighbors, just be better people. You can do it on your own. But the gospel instead says, no, you can't do it on your own. It's going to start transformation from within in a place where you have no ultimate access. Only God's spirit can change the heart. And change comes from within and works itself on its way out. You can fake the outside, but God searches everything and knows your heart. So according to the gospel, if you really want to change, you have to start there and say, God, change my heart. From my heart comes my actions. See, I can fool everybody on the outside, but not God. And that kind of change is only temporary unless God is changing the cause. Moralism addresses symptoms. The gospel goes for the cause. Your heart needs to be changed. And see, the thing is, most of us in the church are functionally moralists. We say we believe the gospel, but we really believe moralism. And you never stop needing the gospel. This is one of the things I've said before. We need it all the time. If justification is one time great, sanctification is ongoing, you never stop needing that transformation from within. You're experiencing dryness in your walk with God. It could be because of this. And I, I leverage the opportunity to say, look at Boaz, look at Ruth, be great. Come on, be better. To say, yeah, there's, we should be like them. Be holy. God's holy. We aim for that. They're great examples, but that's not what God's after here. He's after your heart because you can be a great example and far from God and dead on the inside and ultimately speaking, left to your own devices, it will come out. The obedience comes from a heart that's captivated by the freedom that Christ has given. Now walk in that freedom that you may joy, know joy, not bondage. Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10 says, this is what the Lord said. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength. That feels like moralism to me as we've defined it. Whose heart turns away from the Lord. You're relying on yourself. You know what you're going to be like, he says? Like a bush in the wastelands. 
You will not see prosperity when it comes. It's kind of like, you know, you look and it's like, oh, I can explain why that happened because of what I've done or because of what our nation's done or because of what our world has done. No. That's not the way that God is laying it out here. You're going to dwell in the parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. And the contrast here is, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. Why is that? Because its roots grow deep. So when hard times come, it's not going to wither because that's just fake. See, somebody can put on a good front for a while, and then when things come and the winds blow, you topple over. But not somebody who's gone deep, whose roots, whose heart, it's fully committed here and flourishing. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in the year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. I love this next section. Here's the problem. The heart's deceitful above all things. You think you're living on the, like the blessed person here? Careful. Your heart will deceive you. It's beyond cure. And so you're kind of left with, well, what do I do? Who can understand that? That's where he's leading you. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. So you're brought to a place here where you're fully dependent on God. And as I read through, through the book of Ruth, and it's leading us to that sense of a kinsman redeemer, what are we left with except for turning our eyes to Christ? Because he's our only hope. He's it. If you want to have this everyday faith that's in love, then I would suggest to you it starts with committing to the one who can change you, to the one who has said, I've already done this for you or again reminding yourself of that because some of you maybe have already done that but you've forgotten you've taken your eyes off or maybe you're just a functioning moralist today shed that skin be honest about it say God I need you not me more of you less of me and we got it backwards sometimes and Ruth and Boaz I think are inviting us seems to say that's no longer. We are desperately in need of a kinsman redeemer. Now, we celebrate the Lord's Supper with some regularity because we want to sh remind ourselves that we're 